Hey everybody, it's episode 201 of the Pemcron Warhammer Podcast, and today we are discussing only two things, because both of them are a bit long-winded. Number one, oh my god, oh my god, we have a new Patreon patron! Alright, thank you so much, Kojo, for joining as a mother flippin' lord. He's so sweet. He's sweet. He's cute. <laughs> we should have a threesome with him. <laughs> oh, Paris, he's a married man. Calm down now, lady. Yes, that's right. Kojo is our new mother flippin' lord, in addition to our ever-loving blue-eyed Mike. So thank you so much for all my Patreon patrons, and thank you to GameMat.eu for supporting the show. It uh, really means a lot to me. Anyway, so we are discussing something that I find very odd. It's a weird phenomenon in wargaming, and uh, I'm not really going to get too much into it. It's just weird. I, I discuss it in length in that segment, so it is Hobo Hammer or Homeless Hammer, whatever you want to call it. And then we also have a letter from the new Mother Flippin' Lord, Kojo, and he also has a 11-point email he wants to discuss about his wish list for 10th edition because he just listened to that episode from Andrew. And we are going to get into that uh, line by line of what he agrees with, what he doesn't, what he suggests for 10th edition, etc. So, what have I been up to? As you know, this time of year, I am in the trenches at work, so uh, not a whole lot of time for fun, but I did play a... What did I play at the club this week? You know, every time I have like a hard time remembering because my days just blur by. Um, what did I play? I played against TJ and I played, oh, my Caradron Overlords. That's what it was. He played his, or Caradron, whatever you want to call him. Uh, he played his Soul Blight and I played my Caradron Overlords and he spanked me the very first game. Uh, I didn't realize, I thought my boats were monsters, or, uh, yeah, monsters, and they are not. The biggest one's a behemoth, that's true, but it's not a monster. So, each one of those things is, is, like, worth two models or something when you're scoring objectives. So, I brought all Grunstock gun haulers, because that's my favorite thing to do, bring them as battle line, and then took a, um, ironclad, and then some Grunstock thunders, and... The first game, I was like, from turn one, I thought, I'm like, oh, I'm, I don't think I'm going to win this. Because he had so many bodies on the field. And just the damage output was not enough for my Caradron Overlords to whittle him down enough. And by, like, turn two, I was pretty much tabled. It might have been turn three. But it was very, very quick. And mercifully, he was like, do you want to just call it and start again? And I was like, ha yes, I do. So we both changed our list a little bit. And... I got rid of the whole Grunstock Thunderer thing. Um, I'm sorry, Grunstock Gunhauler, the little boats. I got rid of them for battle line and took my engine riggers. And I, I have, really, that's what I specialized in. My whole list is boats and engine riggers. That's that's the two. I do have Grunstock Thunderers, but I only have 10 of them. The engine riggers and the boats is what I specialize in. So I took them as battle line instead, and it was a very close game. He ended up beating me by two or three points at the end of it. It was 24 to 21 or something like that. And it was just because he got such a big start in the beginning. But I was able to really tear up his stuff. I mean, I killed the Terrorgeist in one turn of shooting. I was really able to do that. And I was able to pick a different um, chapter than I normally do because I'm always taking the Barak Nor or whatever it is so that I can take the Gun Haulers as battle line. Well, come to find out, 
that's a pretty terrible chapter actually because the artifact i rarely ever use because it's not good my warlord trait's not very good i just don't like it i only want the grunstock gun haulers as battle line so being able to take uh endrin riggers as battle line now i can do something different and um come to find out i found another chapter that's like just all around way better so i took that and my warlord kicked butt. He killed a vampire in one turn of shooting just by himself, a vampire lord. And my boat, my ironclad, killed a terrorgeist along with the Grunstock Thunders it was in, that was in it. And they killed a terrorgeist in one turn. And um, overall, I mean, I, I was doing pretty good. If I would have had a sixth turn, he probably would have been tabled but I definitely would have scored the points because the very last turn I controlled four out of five of the objectives in the last turn. And he had almost no army left. And shockingly enough, I mean, my guys held in there pretty well. So um, even though he could like bring zombies back and skeletons and all that, the, the Caradron overlords were definitely holding their own. So that was a much more enjoyable game the second time around. And I think I'm just going to give up on the uh, Grunstock gun haulers for a while as my battle line. And I'll just stick with the Endrin Riggers. I've got more. That's a hard word to say. I've got more Endrin Riggers uh, that I need to assemble. I have 12 of them made, but I could definitely make some more. They're only one attack, but I think they're minus two rend and they're D3 damage each, which is not bad. Um, plus the chapter I took, you can buff them, give them plus one to hit or reroll in ones or whatever. So it was a very enjoyable game with TJ the second time. First time, eh, not so much. So that's basically all I've been up to. I, um, I've been painting more on my starship, uh, train, uh, little by little. And I, uh, I got feedback from the editing on Brutal, my, my Tales from the Brutal, and one of my readers, one of my beta testers, is gave it like a moderate to moderately good review, like overall with all 20 stories. And I had another one that gave me like bad reviews. Like he was very, very negative about it. And there's no way for me to judge. I'm too young, too new of a writer to really be able to judge if someone's off base or not. So I have to just assume out of fear of being too protective of my work, I have to assume that their criticisms are correct. And by experience, criticism is usually based in some sort of truth. If nothing else, it's the truth to him. And if he feels a certain way, then other people may feel that way. But I did a bunch of soul searching and I don't really think, um, I don't think flash fiction is his thing. I think is what it comes down to. Um, because he keeps, uh, my stories are like seven to ten pages long. It's considered flash fiction. And he kept comparing me to short stories, which short stories are like 20 to 150 pages each for a short story. You wouldn't think 150 pages would be a short story, but that like it's still considered one. So I don't really think we were comparing apples to apples there. And some of the things he had issues with, I just simply don't see. And my other beta reader doesn't really see. So... <sighs> Given one person was overall positive and the other one was overall negative, there were there were stories that he liked, but he said most of them he had serious issues with. And all of it was not really about the writing per se. It was like it was like he didn't like different races I included, and by races I mean like 
bird people, you know, lizard people, whatever. Um, he just had some very specific complaints, which is a little odd to me. And um, so I'm going to have to now go to a third person <laughs> to beta read this book because I still don't know. You know, it's it's weird. Like, think about anything. If you polled a portion of the population, right? If you poll everybody on a certain topic, then you know what the population thinks, right? But no poll can ever poll the entire population. So they grab, you know, a thousand people or they grab, you know, a couple hundred people or a couple thousand people or whatever. And then they ask them and they kind of can assume that most of the population per capita is going to agree with whatever ratio they found that answers a certain way on a poll. And my, anyway, I've, I've yammered on long enough. Let's get on to the first segment of this show. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. Hey everybody, it's time for the Tesseract mailbox. And first off, I've got a letter not from Kojo. Oh no, I've got a letter that I just got in the email and I figured I'd cover it just real quick right here because I don't know who sent this to me and it's somewhat humorous. So a cell phone, because it's got the cell phone number there, it sent me a picture via email and it also sent it to a couple other emails that I do not recognize either. There is no subject or nothing or anything. I hate when people say or nothing. There's no subject or anything, and the picture is one of those, I think they're called bitmojis, like where they you make a little caricature of yourself, and you can put them in different positions, and the picture is a woman with pink hair sitting on a toilet, <laughs> there's no nudity, sitting on a toilet, and she's wearing a hat with a cotton candy or a pink ice cream on the picture of the hat. And she's, like, opening the stall door to a bathroom while she's sitting on the toilet. And she's, like, all, like, playfully waving you away. And it says, be right back. And that's what was emailed to me. So, uh, I believe this is an actual email from... Uh, this cell phone is actually from my state, at least. It looks like the area code is, is correct. But... I do not know who these other emails are on here. So it's just just kind of weird. So okay, let's get let's get back to let's get back to Kojo, okay. Kojo, I know him from Shorehammer. I've hung out with him quite a bit at um the tournaments up in New Jersey and things like that. And he's going to write in chiming about the tenth edition episode. Good old Kojo writes. Pemcron, been catching up on your episodes. Or actually he's been kept catching up on your podcasts. I'm stupid. Been catching up on your podcasts. I'm way behind, so this may be a, a bit dated. Love the section on Andrew's top 10 things for 10th edition, but a few things on that. Number one, isn't the eminent 10th edition just the problem? The environment and rules keep changing no matter how bad or good they are. Gotta sell more paper. You'll never stop GW from collecting 40 to 50 bucks a codex. Uh, Kojo, I completely agree with you. Um, whether you love or hate the current edition, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, but there's always a new edition about to come out. So I really genuinely enjoyed 8th edition, as I've said a million times. And unfortunately, the time for 8th edition was, you know, sunsetted and then the rise of 9th edition came. 9th edition's okay. There's some things I don't like about it, but 
it's okay, by and large. And uh, now 10th edition's coming. Well, I mean, is there really much to be changed from 9th edition? I mean, I get that some people... 8th edition was not for everybody, okay? A lot of people thought it was too simplistic. They didn't like the terrain rules. All sorts of issues. I, I understand not everybody liked 8th edition. But 9th edition, I think, has, by and large, improved on a lot of the stuff that people didn't like about 8th edition. So is, you know, what it kind of reminds me of is those wrestling games or the football games like Madden that come out every single year regardless, and they end up recycling some parts from the previous year and then taking some parts out, and then maybe they'll leave those parts out for two years and then put them back in later. And uh, Just James is a big wrestling fan, and I used to be a wrestling fan for a short time, like towards... uh right after high school. It was like two years I was into wrestling with some friends because it was a social thing. And I played the video games. And it was kind of ridiculous because every year you think they would build on top of what they've already created. But it nearly always ended up being that they would take some of the things you loved about the previous game out. And then you're like, well, gee, that, that GM mode or whatever it was was awesome. Why would you take that out? Why would you not just improve... And from what Just James has told me, he hasn't been playing the recent wrestling games either, but they frequently kind of screw the pooch on that. And it's just like, you're like, why? Why? So now a bunch of like the skins you used to unlock are now all DLC, and it's just, it's just a big cash grab. And it's pretty obvious. And that is slightly the way these additions start feeling, you know? On the other hand, it is kind of nice to refresh everything, but... I don't really know how much better they could make 10th edition over 9th edition without just randomly taking out stuff and adding new stuff. Let's see what's on number two of Mr. Kojo's list, which leads me to two. Something I say to the Evil Onions all the time. That's his gaming group, the Evil Onions. 10 points should be 10 points. And yes, Kojo, you've even said this to me in person. The base problem is GW has no idea how to set points. They have some baseless base point system they try to apply, but it just doesn't work in their world of current complexity. Stratagems, auras, manipulation of dice rolls, rerolls, psychic powers, etc. If the points and powers were balanced for every unit in every codex, then we wouldn't have spamming. We would have everyone's favorite thematic army going toe-to-toe -to -toe with each other where tactics and dice rolls matter. And you should know by now, Kojo, I completely agree with you. I feel like the points should be... And, you know, it is a very complex equation to try to figure out, like, if a bolter is this many points, then what is a las cannon? You know, how many points is that? The different strength, different toughness, different damage, AP, all that. There's definitely a complicated problem at hand. There's no doubt about that. But if you are the game creators, it's entirely in your hands to set the points based off of what you have. It is 100% in your power. And they're just not very good at that, unfortunately. Um, but you're right. If all the points, if one point, or let's say 20 points, if 20 points would reliably get you X amount of durability or X amount of damage output, then there'd be no issue. It would just be dice roll and tactics, exactly how you just said it. Number three, which brings me to three, dice rolls matter. Manipulating outcomes is bad. Dice rolls represent the fog of war that we can't recreate on the table on any, in, any, in any other way. An elite trooper tripping over a root, a green conscript pulling off the miracle shot, 
if you have to have rerolls, wait, if you have to have rerolls, they don't negate the negative of the original. This is what he's proposing to change about it. Overcharge your plasma, reroll a one, die, mother... <laughs> sure, you can reroll that to get a hit, but you still die. I kind of like that idea. Uh, many of you probably will not. His second suggestion is, stuff that is clearly not represented in points, i.e. psychic powers, needs to have catastrophic, non-avoidable effects when rolling bad. And basically what you're pointing out there, Kojo, is a basic game design philosophy. For instance, in a game you often will have a brute that either deals a lot of damage or soaks up a lot of hit points, but either way, he's really good in combat, right? Well, typically the brutes are not good at magic. Typically the brutes don't have ranged weapons. Typically the brutes aren't fast. And it's because they're good in some other area. Meanwhile, you have your ranged people that may not be able to take a lot of damage, but they can deal damage from afar. There's these uh, rock, paper, scissors, and it's, it's no more apparent than in my game Brutality, where the melee people are good at melee. The fast people are okay at melee, but they're really harder to be shot, and they're faster in their movement. And the support people are very easy to be shot, but they buff the rest of the group. And the ranged people are kind of not good or bad at anything. They're very average, but they can shoot far. So you see those rock, paper, scissors sort of things. And that's exactly what you're saying. The psychic powers don't have a points cost. Okay. So you are essentially, I know you technically pay for it in the model cost, you would assume. Maybe not. But the different powers have different power levels, naturally. Not all the, the spells are created equal. So that means some of them are more advantageous to have and you're getting a better economy out of those spells versus other ones because you don't pay points for spells. So he's saying that they need to be more risky. If you have, you know, if you roll perils or whatever, it should be pretty catastrophic. But meanwhile, your powers are pretty darn good and they do cool stuff. And I also agree with that. That's basically one of the main tenets of game design. Just think of it that way. If the big baddie in a story was a hulking monster that could take a ton of damage, and he was also super strong, right? And then he also had a bunch of guns, and he also moved super, super fast and was incredibly agile, and he also knew magic, and he also flew, you'd be like, dear God, what's his weakness? You know, it's that same principle. Number four from Mr. Kojo is, I'm not sure we all wanted or needed Magic the Gathering on the tabletop in space in the future. Keep the stratagem simple and a big choice point. So that phrasing is like, what? <laughs> I kind of got confused there. I'm not sure we all wanted or needed Magic the Gathering on the tabletop in space in the future. Keep the stratagem simple and a big choice point. So what I think he's saying is that a lot of the stratagems can become rock, paper, scissors, or things like that. Or he could be referring to a lot of the people use cards to remind them of all the different stratagems they use. I don't know which one. But essentially keep the stratagem simple and a big choice point. So I think I've discussed this with someone before. It might have been Kojo. I, I don't recall because I did see him this winter. And um, I was saying that stratagems should be pretty good, but pretty simple, but limited use. And 
I'm sorry. I'm going to come back to brutality. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know you get sick of hearing it. But there's so many things that Kojo is saying that fall in line with a lot of my philosophies. When you make a warband in brutality, there's something called a faction trait. That is basically a chapter tactic or whatever. And it there's a constant effect on your whole team, like you're sneaky or you use gadgets or you use magic or you use stealth or teamwork or whatever. And they gives you a constant effect for all your people, but then there's two feats. Think of a feat like in a DD feat. Those two feats are essentially stratagems that are typically pretty darn good, but they're only used once per battle. So once again, that that's exactly what Kojo's saying. He's like, make the stratagems better and stronger and make them more useful, but make them one use. Or, or maybe not one use, but limited use. Um, meanwhile, you've got like 75 specific stratagems for different units where this one can only be used on racks. This one can only be used on Cabalate Warriors, etc. Let's see what's next on his list. We are... I'm sorry. Terrain rules should make sense. Cover doesn't improve your armor save. Ever. It makes you harder to hit. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is one thing that never bothered me too much, is the cover save stuff. I do know a lot of people are irritated because it is not a ballistic skill modifier. And I also understand that side. I'm kind of on the fence about that. And there are... You know, if there aren't weren't already so many things that give you minus one to hit or whatever, I'd be more inclined to be more for having modifiers to hit being from terrain. But I'm kind of impartial on that one, so I don't I don't really carry the way. Sorry, Kojo. I, I don't disagree with you, and I don't agree with you. Number six, we are playing a miniatures game. Don't dumb down line of sight rules to the point of insignificant. Firing arc and what a model would normally be expected to be doing are important. Damn it, Kojo, you're bringing up brutality again, man. Yeah, I mean, I often thought firing arcs was a really big deal. That's why in brutality... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make this about brutality. I'm very sorry. But you've got a 180 degree line of sight for attacks. And rear arc gives you a bonus for being in the back of it. Now, I know these are squads. These aren't people, you know, like individual troops. But... Honestly, I always felt like maybe the squads should have, you know, different different benefits for, um, maybe they should all face the same way. Or it should be a model-per-model model basis where, you know, if you choose to have your people facing in every direction, okay, this happens. If you choose to have them all facing one direction, then this happens. And that's something that I'm doing in the brutal space, but I'm, I'm not, not trying to make this about me. I'm very sorry. But this just, he keeps bringing up points which I wholeheartedly agree with, and I have applied in my own stuff. So I'm. let me, I promise I won't bring it up again. Number seven, I have said forever that the static one player does all, next player does all is not realistic. If you have to keep it simple, then move, then do something like player one turn, move, player one moves, player two shoots, player one assaults, morale, then switch with the opposite. Now, that would be actually pretty interesting. Um, by the way, my, my favorite game does have alternating activations, but I'm not going to mention it. I'm, I'm not, not going to mention it. Uh, <laughs> it is actually interesting that you bring that up, though. So, player one, the first phase is player one moves. Now, you're, you're suggesting that then player one does not shoot, player two shoots, 
and then player one assaults, and then you've got morale, and then you switch, and then it's player two's turn, in which case player two will move, player one will shoot, player two will... I don't know if that's too complicated to be helpful, but I do see where you're coming with that. The other thing that I've always heard from people is that both players move everything, both players shoot everything, both players assault everything. And I kind of like that too. So, it's an interesting suggestion. I don't know if it'd be too complicated or not, but... Number eight is FAQs and points adjustments. You're charging obscene amounts for rules and models. Get it right the first time. Kojo, you keep bringing up good points. This is what I keep saying. Either get it right the first time or give me an app that will automatically update so that I don't have to put all sorts of sticky notes in my books. That's all I'm asking. Number nine, I kind of agree with the tier system not needed if point two is achieved, which brings me to point ten. So remember, point two was he saying that a point should... 10 points should be 10 points, but he still agrees with it if you can't achieve it through that. Number 10, troops need to be troops, not elites. Certain codexes have troops that are really elites, i.e. Thousand Sons, World Eaters. I'm sure there are others, like Custodes comes to mind. We are going to use the units that are better for the points by nature. If you're going to do a point-based army system, everything should be balanced. It shouldn't be about hunting for the mistakes. I personally think that GW's done a fairly good job of making troops useful with the whole objective secured thing. Now, of course, in typical GW fashion, I'm not hating on them, but they do take one gimmick and then all of a sudden all sorts of things that aren't troops get objective secured. So, and they also did decentralize the whole thing where you don't need troops necessarily. You can take whatever detachment you want. Um, I'm not opposed to that necessarily because i think it's really cool that you can build detachments around whatever you want to bring like you know the outrider or whatever so it's actually pretty cool and i'm not opposed to that but i do see that giving other units objective secured is a real issue and i thought that giving troops objective secured was a really neat incentive for you to be able to bring troops because they're your bread and butter they should be the biggest part of your army uh narratively you know no one takes mostly troops but you get what i'm saying narratively it should be and i think they've done okay with that i'm not totally off that but some armies are just elite heavy like gray knights and custodies and thousand sons they just are elite and even dark uh deathwing not deathwing uh dark angels they're pretty elite heavy and i guess that's just the way it goes but if you would not give the other non-troop things objective secured, I think that would go a long way into preserving the role of troops on the battlefield. Then we also have number 11. He's going to throw some shade at Grendel. If you'll recall, Grendel replied and said that he likes how it's kind of rock, paper, scissory, and he likes that in, in Warhammer. And Kojo says, tell Grendel to go to a rock, paper, scissors grand tournament. LOL, no offense intended, by the way. Love, Kojo. So, this has been a very long Tesseract mailbox. I apologize if you guys don't like this. You know, some of you are bound to not like the, the Tesseract mailbox segment. And this was lengthy. But uh, Kojo hit me with 11 points in this email. So, I feel personally like 11 points should be 11 points, right? And I had to give it 11 points worth of commentary and reactions. Okay, I guess I've talked enough. And uh, if, if any of you are the one that sent me that caricature on the toilet saying we'll be right back, uh, let me know, because I have no idea why you would send that to me. <laughs> now it's time for Real Talk with Pimp Cron. 
So for the real talk portion of this episode, I wanted to discuss something that I find very fascinating. I think it's a little overboard. I also think it's kind of impressive. I also think that it's just, what's the point? I have so many mixed emotions about this. So you may have seen in the title, I either called it Hobo Hammer or Homeless Hammer. And they don't call it that because they're not actually playing Warhammer in most cases. But there is a weird psychology behind this trend. And I've been watching it for at least a year now. I've joined the Facebook group and all that. And like I said, it's both, it's, it's, equal parts impressive and like WTF. And what I'm talking about is the super cheap wargaming Facebook group on Facebook. And all of us, of course, are kind of sick of the high prices and, you know, Games Workshop is constantly raising the prices and we kind of feel like we're getting the raw end of the deal. And some people get angry and they go to Mantic, which is much cheaper, or they go to Malifaux, which is a small model count, or they go to Infinity, which is a small model count. Although, Infinity models are kind of expensive, but Malifaux has some good deals on models, and um, everyone deals with it in their own way. They start playing Ninth Age instead of Age of Sigmar, or or whatever. You know, they play one-page rules or whatever. So everybody deals with it. Oh, recasts. I gotta mention recasts. People buy recasts to offset the costs and things like that. So anyway, we've all had our wallet or our spouse complain to us at some point about the money we are spending on our hobby and nobody could blame either one of them for that your wallet is starved for cash if you're a wargamer so what does super cheap wargaming do about it well it's a group that is dedicated on being exactly what they say as cheap as possible so you're like oh so what they buy like you know recasts or they buy mantic models and use them in gw no they it's it started out it's so weird it's such a weird phenomenon so when i first started people were playing games like frostgrave brutality the things like that where you kind of make your own narrative and you can use whatever models you want gaslands and those type of games and they would like buy the plastic army men and they're like oh i bought plastic army men and i'm going to make a warband or i'm going to make some uh, my own game with it or i'm going to use these army men to play bolt action or whatever. And it started out pretty innocent, to be honest. I I think it was pretty innocent. But over time, there has been this fever that has caught among the group. And I'm just watching it from the sidelines going, what is going on here? Is it like that dancing disease that people caught in the medieval times where the whole town started dancing and some people danced to death and they wouldn't stop dancing and nobody knows where it came from or why it started? I feel like this is kind of it because they have gone more and more ridiculous with how cheap everything is. And to the point where they pride themselves on not buying a single thing to in the most extreme circumstances, they pride themselves on not buying a single thing. Everything that they build their board, their terrain, their armies, everything out is essentially recycled or free or it's part of some other thing, or, like, it just, it's, it's kind of nuts. So, one of the things that has really plagued that group is clothespin starships. There is a game from Osprey Games, which, uh, honestly, I own the book and I find it dreadful, but a lot of people like it. It's a spaceship game similar to Battlefleet Gothic, and you can use whatever models you want, similar to my upcoming Brutal Space. 
And people have gotten on the bandwagon of buying wooden clothespins and tearing them apart and using the parts to build spaceships. And honestly, the spaceships look pretty cool. I mean, they've done a really, really good job of it. You know how the inside of the clothespin, that where the two pieces of wood meet, there's like like a bump and then a notch for the coil of, uh, of spring, and then it comes back out and then it slams da- slants down? Well, people will use those, like break apart the two pieces, flip them opposite of each other, like um, rotate them so they're no longer facing each other the way they were. And then glue them back like that, and then take a half of another one and glue it on top of those. And the way they paint them and all that, they do a pretty darn good job, believe it or not. And they'll use buttons or coins or whatever for the base, and like a toothpick or a straw for the the stem. And it started out as like a neat, oh, look, this one person did this. And then it became inundated with pictures of these makeshift uh, clothespin starships, which, I mean, whatever, right? I don't want you to think I'm hating on these people because it's an interesting facet of the hobby. It's not my cup of tea, but I think it's pretty neat that people are expressing themselves this way artistically. And, you know, honestly, this is a hobby. Make it your own. Do whatever you want to do. So please don't go, you know, I don't think any of you would. I've got a pretty chill audience, but don't go harassing them or whatever. You may want to join the group because it's kind of interesting. If nothing else from the sidelines, it's kind of fascinating. But after the clothespin starship thing, which we're still partially plagued by, at least once a week we get some sort of clothespin starship thing. People using seashells for starships and all sorts of stuff, but whatever. And eventually it starts going worse and worse. It goes from buying plastic army men or recycling children's toys to make a playset or terrain or whatever down to buying the plastic dinosaurs and stuff like that. And it's like, Oh, I spent, you know, $2 and I got a whole army of dinosaurs or whatever. Okay, cool. That started, started out as the bargain hunting stuff. Then it was kind of like outdoing each other sort of scenario. So then it was like, Oh, well, I built this whole fleet of starships with just clothespins. It cost me $1 for a bag of clothespins, and here I am. And you're like, okay. I mean, if you enjoy building them, then cool. That's kind of like a hobby within a hobby, because not only are you like buying a kit and assembling it, but you're actually finding stuff that would fit your needs and then tearing it apart in order to assemble it, in order to make it just so you can brag how cheap it was, which I find odd, but... Enjoy the hobby however you'd like. But then I saw something that was even more ridiculous, and that's what spawned me to talk about it today. I saw someone that is basically making up either a game or a guide to super cheap wargaming, and this group, I don't think there's much of a chance of him listening to this this podcast, so I'm going to be kind of frank about it. Because the, the group is not about Warhammer per se. People do play Warhammer, but most of it is like they make their own games or stuff like that. A lot of them play with their kids, and that's why they want super cheap stuff. So hopefully I'm not hurting anybody's feelings, because I do have some admiration for these people and the amount of effort they put into it. But he is either making a, a guide to doing this, or he's making a game out of it. But basically it's like, oh, look, you have everything you need to game around you. And he starts out with those damn wooden clothespins, right? But he doesn't take them apart. He stands them on their end, like the two little legs and the pincher parts up top. 
And then he took uh, toothpicks, I think it was, and glued the toothpicks on them to be like a little lance. And then they did either bottle caps or coins and glued them for shields on these little guys. And then he used a coin or a button. Oh, it was a button for shield. Then he used like a coin or something for the base. And he built like 20 of these soldiers to be like two forces. And I'm like, okay. But then he uses paper towel rolls as the trunks of trees. And then he crumples up green like construction paper to put on top of that to make the foliage for the trees. And then he says like, oh, look, you've got things around your house. And he shows a black stapler and he's like, look at this. This is a greater scorpion. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, look, you've got weapons in your house. And it was buttons and needles and uh, paper clips and stuff like that. And he's like, oh, look, and you've got treasure. And it was a bag of Skittles. And at some point, I'm like, you're crossing some sort of weird, weird line here. Not that imagination's a bad thing. Not that creativity's a bad thing. And like I said, enjoy what you want. But it's kind of like everybody wants to save money in this hobby. Everybody goes about it differently, joining other games, buying recasts, whatever. Then these people have made a... They're like metagaming money savings. And there, there comes a time in any project, whether it be house renovations or whatever, right? That you've got to weigh your own time and effort versus the money spent. If you know nothing about plumbing whatsoever and you decide that you're going to try to save a buck and do some renovation for plumbing in your house and you F it up, it may end up taking more hassle and more time and more effort and maybe even more money than it would have been had you just hired a freaking plumber. You get what I'm saying? So it's cool that you make your own models and all of that, but I, I couldn't help but think, oh my God, look how much time he has spent on this on this project. And as long as he's enjoying himself, that's fine, but I do not have the time for this, like at all. I barely even want to assemble the models that I buy that are a kit meant to be assembled, let alone tearing apart clothespins and trying to find buttons the right size for shields. So here's the things I just brought up. He said, adventure stuff, fantasy adventure with the commonly found. Here's your heroes. The, uh, oh, I'm going to get my, he's the uh, king from chess. These are all like um, chess pieces. A wizard is a king, a fighter is a queen, an elf is a bishop, a paladin is a um, knight, a dwarf is a rook, and a gnome is a pawn. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's fine, I guess. Then it says artifact weapons. There's tacks, a safety pin, a push pin, and a, a paper clip. And I'm like, all right. And then here's the giant scorpion I told you about and the treasure. A giant scorpion is a black stapler. Treasures a bag of Skittles, and then the Beholder is a tennis ball. Is there a face on it? No. No, it is it is it is just a tennis ball. Correct. All right. Next picture. Adventure stuff. Adve fantasy adventure with the commonly found. A tea candle, like the little teeny candles that like your wife probably has sitting around, is a fire elemental. All right. A glass of water is a water elemental. Okay, buddy. 
Play-Doh is a mimic. <sighs> okay, let's keep going. A Mr. P- Potato Head is an ogre. Whatever you say, dude. Fire Staff is a matchstick. <sighs> okay. A dragon is a desk lamp. You heard me right. A desk lamp. And... <sighs> I don't know why. It makes me feel sad. I don't know why. It's just sad. So, he used a bunch of Jenga blocks to... And and like I said, I hate to hate on this because I'm really not hating on it, but I find it so odd that you go to this much trouble. But some of the, some of the pictures are actually kind of cool and kind of creative. He used, like, wooden blocks, like Jenga blocks, to build, like, a wall. And um, in this picture, he's using Jenga blocks for the base of the trees, the trunks. And he's got these four little clothespin guys with swords and shields, and he's using rivets. If if you've never used rivets before, like riveting something into metal, they actually do look like a little sword with a hilt and everything. And um, they've got like a long piece that sticks through and, and all that. That's the part that breaks off when you actually make the rivet. But they've got little rivets and clothespins, and they're on coins or wooden tokens, I guess. And the archer has a bunch of... He uses a... Um, paper clip as the bow and arrow and then on the back of the archer he's got a bunch of toothpicks for arrows i mean this is clever you gotta give it to him and the party of the different chess pieces i guess they're the heroes are gonna face off against them i mean it's cute in a way i just find it so odd that you would take this much time it's almost like well like i said it's like metagaming being cheap (laughs) It's like, not only am I going to be cheap, not only, but I'm going to go to extreme lengths to save a buck. And it just find it odd. Now, to each his own, I suppose, but I just find it odd. And you're really taking imagination to the next level. I mean, you have to really imagine that this king is a wizard and that this knight is a whatever it was supposed to be. I just, wow. So, uh, once again, it is kind of fascinatingly cool in a, in a very weird way, but I don't really see the point, especially as cheap as 3D printing is. Like, you can buy 3D printed models very cheaply, and God knows we all have like a million models sitting around anyway from different games or whatever, and, and even things as cheap as like Green Army Men and whatnot, but this... At some point, this gets really kind of weird. So, I just wanted to explain to you that there is a faction of wargamers out there that are going to extreme lengths to spend as little money as possible and go well out of their way to not only assemble their miniatures, but create them and have to use their imagination to make them into new things. And... I've said it before, it's kind of beautifully poetic in like a very strange way. It's really neat. It kind of reminds you of the sort of thing like when I was a kid, um, I never had like real named G.I. Joes. I had uh, the Walmart brand called The Core. And it was kind of neat because these are all like generic people and I could make my own characters in them. I didn't have to say that, oh, this is Snake Eyes because it's Snake Eyes model sort of thing. But I would use toothpicks as swords, because toothpicks actually fit in their hands pretty well, and there you go, there's a sword, or or whatever. So it does kind of remind me of childhood, 
where you did heavily rely on stuff because you obviously didn't have a budget to buy anything because you're a kid. And, you know, you would have maybe Buzz Lightyear fight your G.I. Joes or your Ninja Turtles or whatever you had, you know. Um, Buzz Lightyear is probably after every single one of my listeners and myself. It was, we were like, I mean, at the very least, we were teenagers when Buzz Lightyear came out. But you get what I'm saying. So, I just thought it was interesting. Hopefully you did too. Thank you to GameMet.eu for supporting the show, and thank you to all my beautiful, sexy, good-smelling Patreon patrons, include a new mother-flippin' lord, Kojo. I'll see you next week.